HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Thursday afternoon, welcome. We are here uh, live from the Hudson Valley and sponsored by Hearst Ranch. This is Severin. I'm your host every week talking to young farmers around, around the country about issues relevant to them and, and hopefully relevant to you. Today I'm joined um, by Sam Comfort of Anarchy Apiaries. He, he actually has his bee, bee operation all over Dutchess County in southern Columbia County and has a bee yard here on Smithereen Farm, so we get to see him quite often. Sam, welcome to the show. Thanks, Severin. It's great to be here. So, Sam, let's start with um, how you came to be into bees and what it means to be a beekeeper to you now in this place and this time. Go. Well, things are pretty exciting these days. Uh, things got very exciting for me after I won six beehives in a poker game, which is what I say. It's not exactly true, but it's the best story I've come up with so far. Actually, I went to Bard College. I was an art major and started playing with sticks and mud and wanted to go into agriculture. Uh, through friends, I was pointed towards bees. I started at Honey Gardens up in Vermont, uh, where I could park my van out back at the honey house and camp out and learn about bees for uh, the season. That fall, all my friends moved to Brooklyn, and I moved to Montana, where I spent four years on and off working for a a 5,000-hive migratory outfit doing almond pollination in California and apple pollination in Washington and cherry pollination around Flathead Lake, actually uh, moving the bees with forklifts, four hives per pallet, about 500 hives on a semi-truck, a uh, giant net over them, and you kiss them goodbye down the road 2,000 miles going to California to rent out to the almond growers for uh, big bucks these days. Beekeepers really, uh, the large-scale beekeepers aren't making a living selling honey with so much honey coming in from China and Argentina. So uh, 
basically they are moving their bees around the country. Even from here in New York, they ship them to California every February to pollinate almonds or up to Maine for blueberries in May, then cranberries in the, uh, the mid-Atlantic states and down to citrus in Florida. It's basically a rat race with insects. <laughs> so even with all the company of the, of the buzzing ladies, it uh, doesn't seem like you're the rat race type. Tell us, um, tell us about the alternative to such an industrial beekeeping operation and, and, why, um, and why others might be inclined to get involved in, in that other kind of um, pollination service. Well, after seeing years of, of darkness and death and, and watching bees going downhill because uh, of so many pesticides and so much malnutrition from uh, monocultured farming, uh, not a diverse diet for uh, the bee families, I was fed up and couldn't condone uh, putting medications in the hive anymore and didn't want to support that kind of farming. So. Uh, I came back to the Hudson Valley uh, at the same time that the, the bee collapse story was hitting the media. Um, really, uh, bees have been going downhill for decades ever, ever since uh, they've been pushed to uh, meet uh, the demands of farming and, and are facing our, our land use issues with the pesticides. So it's the, the collapse story is nothing new, though we have unprecedented public support these days for our insect communities. Um, Beekeeping is trendy these days, so uh, we are at the forefront of an awareness movement. Once you get into bees, you are connected to your entire ecosystem. Uh, wild land has an all, a whole new meaning. Um, let's, let's talk a little bit more about the, um, the pesticides and, and the land use issues. When, when we're talking about the almond pollination that's going on in California, um, which has been beautifully documented, by the way, in a film called Pollen Nation, made by a wonderful woman named Singley Agnew, who's a dear friend of mine, an ally in a Greenhorns project. Um, she managed to get an airplane to fly over um, almond country in, um, in and around the northern Central Valley. And um, if you don't know it already, 80% uh, of, of the world's almonds are grown um, in almost one continuous, contiguous block in northern northern. California and, uh, or not only northern, central, no, central and northern. And um, what that essentially amounts to is one big boom town of blossoms, all of whom need attention, immediate attention, um, by these very um, deliberate and um, hardworking creatures. And um, there is a certain amount of um, chemical input that is required by a system that is so... Um, intensive and so extensive um, as as that mega monoculture of, of almonds. So visualize, if you will, hundreds of hundreds of acres of um, of almonds, and then the bees dancing in and out of these beautiful white blossoms. Um, what's going on overhead? What is being sprayed, Sam? Tell us about the chemis. Well, it, it, it's pretty ridiculous these days that there's so much control in our land use that um, uh, you go to the San Joaquin Valley uh, where I went with the bees, uh, you see miles and miles of sand and nutrient solution and almond trees. Uh, so the bees are carted in there from around the country because there is no other forage for them throughout the year. Uh, they'll do well on making almond honey when the, the, the bloom is on, but once that bloom is done, the bees 
will start to starve right away because there are no other flowers for them. So they are carted in and carted out uh, within a matter of a, a couple weeks. And um, in almonds these days, uh, and most crops that require bee pollination are uh, heavily regulated for their pesticide use to protect bees in, in these days. Growers know the importance of their bees. They're, they're paying high prices for pollination fees these days. But uh, it's really the number one user of pesticides in this country are still private landowners who are after their perfect green lawn. And uh, for, the, for the past several decades, the, the main pesticides in this country have been organophosphates, which were developed in World War II as nerve gas. Uh, we realized that they worked good killing insects, so we started applying it to our food until basically every pest uh, that, that we were applying against uh, has developed resistance and people were getting cancer. So Bayer Crop Science came up with a new line of uh, systemic pesticides, which is like a synthetic nicotine. Uh, it works as a ground drench or a seed soak, and it shows up in every part of the plant. And now they are the most uh, ubiquitous, ubiquitous uh, chemicals used, more popular than Roundup, the main one being amidacloprid, or IMD. Um, these products uh, like gaucho, sale, or merit are used to kill grubs on, on people's lawns, but um, most crops these days are using these systemics, which not only show up in the crops, but also in wildflowers adjacent to cropland. They're showing high residual in the soil, and of course the Bayer studies say that uh, uh, the sublethal effects on honeybees are not a serious issue in the, the recent collapses. Um, there are studies that say different. You uh, just need to look at who's sponsoring the study. So, so clearly there's um, some controversy here. Um, and while the honeybee has become much more charismatic and um, PR familiar to, to urban eaters and voters and, and legislators who recognize the tremendous ecosystem services that they provide and, and you know, agricultural services, the, the value of pollination is estimated in the billions, I think, um, still, still, um, you know, animals can't sue or <laughs> insects can't sue um, for their rights in court, and we do not um, have a terribly good history of protecting animals from poisons. Um, what has been what has been the commentary and kind of um, intrigue with Bear? I mean, has Bear had to talk about their um, about their products' effects on, on bees, and, and, and if you could maybe mention some references, um, some websites or some books that people might go to if they're interested in pursuing that, um, this topic, because it does feel like beyond us caring about the bees, um, we do need to do a little bit more um, research into what exactly is wrong if we are to, to get legislative change to protect our pollinators. Thank you. Yeah, the, the, the bees certainly don't have the ability to sue Bayer, and apparently neither do the beekeepers, a group of North Dakota beekeepers having a standing lawsuit since the mid-'90s, since they saw their hives uh, collapse while pollinating sunflowers uh, that were being sprayed with a mitocloprid. Uh, Bayer Crop Science is a multi-billion-dollar international corporation which, with heavy government ties that uh, basically... Uh, have a lot of sway with what legislation gets passed and uh, very powerful lawyers that can claim misapplication of pesticides and uh, have set themselves up to be a rather untouchable company. 
Uh, however, in in fear of uh, uh, the public view, they are working with beekeepers. Um, uh, a group of large-scale beekeepers have started Project Apis M, uh, which you can find out about on the Internet. And also they're working with the North American Pollinator Protection Campaign to uh, create a dialogue and make sure their products are safe and to uh, uh, spread awareness and knowledge of how things should be applied that uh, won't harm the honeybees. On the other hand, though, uh, my course of action is totally grassroots. Rather than working from the top down, rather to take down this huge company bear, we need to spread awareness and tell people to stop the spraying because there are so many alternatives. Um, basically, uh, uh, changing the way we cultivate our food and the way we appreciate our land and uh, bees being on the forefront of it in, in the media these days can really change uh, how we uh, uh, are working with our food production and distribution to stop the spraying. So, so we know that bees are pollinating, and we um, we understand that you know the birds and the bees are um, basically um, providing the concubine services to the plants. I mean, they are um, they are the facilitators of the mojo, um, and so all who eat depend not only on the sun and the rain, but also on the um, sexual activities of these um, winged creatures. Let's um, let's describe a little bit what that dance is, and 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 like here comes a bee in the air. What is she doing this morning? Um, back to you. That bee is uh, one of 20,000 different species of bees on our planet, at least that many, uh, that have been around for over 100 million years. Uh, fossil records show that insect pollination actually predates wind pollination in plants. What does that mean? Uh, basically, pollen is how flowers have sex. It's how they spread pollen from one anther to another to spread their genetic information because they're rooted in the ground and can't do it on their own. So uh, what pollination means is seeds or fruit. Uh, it's an amazing uh, 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 just how many of our products and uh, food, our produce these days, we figure about 80% of the produce in America requires bees for pollination. Things you would never even think of, like carrots or onions, uh, all need bees to produce seed, as well as alfalfa for cattle crops uh, need to produce seed. Uh, all require bees to, to be out there. So back to the bee, um, because here, here we sit overlooking um, the green field, and right now I've got the end of the buckwheat, lots of cosmos, a whole bunch of flowering melons, um, and I'm and I'm, I'm wanting to um, describe like the flight of the bee. Like, what is she doing? And and is it her? And by the way, it's the girls who do all the work, um, which is something that we won't get into right now. But um, so, like for example, I have a um, we went down to West Virginia, and um, we're going to West Virginia again this week. Um, but we also were in Kentucky, and we spoke with a beekeeper who's raising bees on X coal mining land. Her name is Tammy Horn. And she found that the bees were aiding the regeneration of, of native vegetation on this land which had been, um, well, which the mountain had been removed. And then they crushed some rocks and they put some topsoil. 
um, and they spread some, some native seed, but the bees were um, making a, an estimable difference that they had done studies on. And so she was hired by the mining companies to do the reclamation, to facilitate reclamation of that land. Um, let's, let's describe how much, um, how much pollen and how much, like, tell, like t- tell me what's going on with this girl. She leaves the hive. What does she do? She's visiting, she's definitely visiting my melons. Yep, bees are going to forage in a six-mile radius around their hives if they have to. They're very efficient pollinators within two miles, which is a vast amount, thousands and thousands of acres, uh, if you do the math. Um, bees really are the, the keystone of the diversity of our planet, and in getting away from the energy-intensive systems of carting bees around the country and having a sustainable bee set up in your backyards, which I highly encourage, is to uh, allow for the bees a complete diet throughout their, their whole year. Uh, here in the Hudson Valley, the main event of the spring is dandelions, which most people uh, note as a weed. Uh, dandelions being, of, of course, an incredibly medicinal and important plant and a very tasty one, and a, a very important one to bees and all of the uh, native pollinators in the area. Uh, clover being the, the main event of the summer and, and late fall flowers like goldenrods and asters uh, wrapping things up. But to keep bees in one spot year-round as, as they uh, are healthiest, you need all of these plants blooming throughout the course of the year. Uh, to grow our food, we need the bees. And to have the bees, we need the wild areas because in their, the wild areas, just for the sake of them being there, that's our salvation. Well, speaking of salvation, I think we have to take a musical break. Um, I want to make sure to thank our sponsor, Hearst Ranch, um, and to remind you that you're listening to Greenhorns Radios every Thursday at 4 o'clock. Um, I'm your host, and we're going to go to music. Francisco, she 
did a little um, artist in residency pause here at the farm and um, was working on a project um, about radical agriculture and was visiting with Sam um, about his fabulous um, band. It's not a band. He's a beekeeper. He's not a band. But it's called um, the Beekeepers Association of Northern Dutchess County. And that is a group that Sam started and it hosts uh, monthly meetings. I wonder, Sam, if you wouldn't mind tell us about your band. Uh, the band is part of my vision of having a network of beekeepers out in the world. Uh, the future I, I see of our, our food being small, diversified, organic farms, which will require uh, pollination, a network of pollinators and small-time beekeepers. Uh, the goal is to have more beehives than televisions out there. So the band, the Beekeepers Association of Northern Duchess, meets in Tivoli, New York, monthly, and we also host uh, quite a few field days, uh, uh, picnics, potlucks, uh, days out with the bees, going through the hives, looking at queens, uh, making splits, and uh, uh, training to keep bees alive without any artificial crutches, any of the medications or artificial feed that... Uh, that is going on today. So it's a lot of fun. Uh, you can catch up with current events at the website, which is www.anarchyapiaries.org. Very cool. Um, and beautiful women um, are constantly apprenticing with Sam. It's, if you're, you know, if, for no other reason than to get a date, I would encourage you to um, start to learn more about beekeeping. Uh, let's talk a little bit if you wouldn't mind, about the interesting shape that your bees have. Now, Sam is interesting in many ways. He's got um, tattoos of bees all over his elbows. But he also has very, and one on his knee. <laughs> um, he also has a very unusual um, form of beekeeping. Not that unusual in many parts of the world, but around here, um, his beehives are... Um, not the norm. Sam, tell us about the top bar hive. Uh, the top bar hive is an ancient style of keeping bees that goes against the, uh, the ubiquitous commercial beekeeping methods that has been popular, popular since the 1850s. During the Industrial Revolution, uh, beekeepers saw a profitable business emerging and standardized on a beehive shape and methods to go along with it called the Langstroth hive which has been uh, spread around the world and is the, the most common uh, form of beekeeping today, those normal box hives that get stacked up through the course of the summer. If you go to a bee business, uh, a, a bee distribution company, uh, that's basically what they're going to set you up with. Um, there's a lot of inherent problems uh, that over the past several generations have not been questioned in, in these kinds of beehives, um, which the top bar hive... Uh, uh, alleviates or ignores or dismisses or doesn't even go towards. Um, one of them being artificial comb. Uh, uh, the the Langstroth hives, the, the box hives, uh, give bees a fake foundation uh, where they draw their wax cells off of to raise their young and store their honey. These frames are, are spun out in extractors and the comb is saved year after year uh, to give the bees more wax so they can make more honey in a, a profit-driven thinking. Um, what happens is that this wax saved a, a year after year is lipophilic, and it absorbs all the pests, uh, pathogens, uh, and uh, pesticides that are out there. 
uh, being saved year after year, all these diseases started uh, emerging when uh, these, uh, this style of beekeeping got around. Um, the top bar hives use no of, uh, none of this uh, artificial comb. It's basically shaking bees into an empty space and letting them do their own thing. Still totally inspectable and totally legal, but uh, it's really a less invasive style where the bees just do whatever they want. Um, so let's, let's get this more visual image for our wonderful radio listeners. Uh, imagine a box, and imagine that in the box you have sliced bread, and in, but it's not sliced bread. It's actually combs, and the combs are an inch and a half apart, which is the size of the body of the bee. And the combs are then drawn into cells by the bees. The flat panels of the bread are made, made bulky and SUV-like. Um, by the actions of the bees who are making little um, capsules for themselves and their young and their honey. And those capsules then are scraped to, make, to take the honey out. In a top bar hive, what happens? We harvest the entire comb when there is surplus to spare and let the bees draw their own new wax year after year, which they've been doing as a social unit for 80 million years. And uh, we find that the bees that design their own homes in this way, rather than uh, giving them a sheet of plastic, which is industry standard these days, it's almost like giving them a plastic skeleton with ridges on it, telling the bees, dictating the bees how to raise their brood, what size to be. This plastic that we've been giving the bees has actually been oversized, thinking bigger bees make more honey. The result is actual bigger bees. Um, but uh, when we shake these into a totally empty box and let them go back to their wild state, uh, they regress their cell size, and it turns out they can handle the parasitic mites and the secondary diseases that show up. So in a sense, you're breeding smaller bees for smaller cells and smaller, more nimbler, and more resilient bees. It's interesting that the cells being so... Um, the cell structure having such a deterministic um, and bigger is better mentality. It's kind of like um, the lots that you see, the suburban lots carved out of um, our agricultural land in um, a pretty abusive way, in my opinion. Um, and instead, we envision a future in which individuals would create um, enterprises and, and farm organisms that are um, inspired by the shape of the land and the indigenous flora of the land um, by the particular geo geological formations and aspects that they find there, and that um, those individual humans acting in the long-term best interest of, that, of themselves and their place um, would design fabulous systems of um, abundance and life. And that if we had enough of those wonderful places, um, that we would have a sustainable food system. So um, in the same way, these bees are making their own farm, their own um, domestic ecosystem um, within, this, within this box. Let's describe the box and how you make the boxes, because this is really interesting stuff. Uh, the, the box is an ode to minimalism. <laughs> it's uh, constructed very cheaply out of rough-cut lumber that's sustainably harvested locally here. Uh, the box costs about $6 worth of lumber to build. Uh, you can build it with a... Uh, a circular saw anywhere. It's easy to make, and uh, every spring there's swarms out there. So I mean, the, or sprinkle some lemongrass in the box, and you might have some bees showing up. 
Okay, so we have the smaller bees in the smaller cells in their own free-form, um, delightful, self-contrived um, situation. Uh, what kind of bees are they? Where are these bees from? Are they American uh, native bees? Are they some wild, crazy bee that we could also have in a tree? Or are they like us um, from um, a diasporic tradition of uh, Western expansion? Well, since uh, the, the modern commercial hives came around, which allowed easy inspections and artificial manipulations, folks have been breeding bees, uh, raising extra daughter queens artificially, uh, selecting from a select group of genetics, basically the best hives, the one that produce the most honey, or these days the ones that are strongest in February to pollinate California almonds. Uh, what uh, today's beekeeping requires uh, with uh, the constant uh, death of hives due to pesticides and malnourishment, uh, what uh, these industries require is bees that can be constantly split. So they want bees that are brooding all the time and constantly growing. Um, this requires constant artificial feeding. Uh, basically these days it's corn syrup as carbohydrates and soy flour as a protein supplement. So uh, this artificial feeding in conjunction with selecting from the bees that are growing all the time has led to bees that cannot survive on their own. They're incapable of feeding themselves. They turn all honey and all of this uh, corn syrup into more bees. Uh, basically, uh, if you have a large hive that's ready to pollinate almonds in February in California, if you have that hive here in New York, it's going to starve to death and not survive the winter. So. Um, the bee breeding that's doing all this uh, happens in a lot of our universities funded uh, for uh, the industrial interests. Um, and it's also focusing on in the southern states, the southeast, or California, or in Hawaii, uh, where warmer weather allows it to uh, uh, bee breeding to go on year-round. These bees are then shipped uh, up on semi-trucks here to the northeast or other parts of the country every spring. Those bees uh, breed with the feral population already established here, and those feral genetics are compromised. This has led to a frighteningly, frighteningly shallow gene pool all around the country, bees that cannot survive without uh, the constant manipulations or uh, you know, medications, antibiotics. So um, what uh, USDA did in lieu of uh, the parasitic mites that were wiping out beekeepers over the past 20 years was import Russian genetics uh, from Eastern Russia that had been dealing with this one mite, the Varroa destructor, for well over 100 years. past 10 years now, we've been importing these Russian genetics, and what uh, me and a bunch of other treatment-free beekeepers have discovered is that these bees aren't just resistant to mites, but resistant to just about everything. Uh, they have a wild tendency, they, they swarm constantly, and they're just robust and vigorous and lovely bees just to have around. So uh, I, we use a lot of Russian queens in, in our outfit as well as uh, feral uh, stock that we get from doing removals from buildings and barns that need to be torn down. If they show uh, promising viability, then they're incorporated into the breeding program. So we're, we're almost at the end, but tell me, what, how many different kinds of bees do you think you have in, in your collection, and, and how many hives do you have? You have 13 here, right? 13 here, and, and how many in total? Oh, uh, all around, and on 15 different farms here in Dutchess and Columbia County, we have about 300 hives. 
So we're, we're busy, very busy, and uh, just letting them do their own thing. And uh, but uh, to me, it's uh, beekeeping. It's just, just the forefront of uh, of uh, a whole awareness movement that that's been going on right now. Um, everyone asks me uh, about this global crisis that's going on with the bees, and really, the the less infringements we we bring to the beehive, the more that we get out of their way. Uh, it seems that the more uh, robust they are, the more morale they have, and uh, the better they are surviving just on their own. So once again, unless you didn't, in case you didn't get it already, um, Sam's website is www.anarchyapiaries.org. Sam, any other call-outs you want to make? I know that um, Just Food has just concluded um, Pollinator Week, where they um, collected signatures to try and legalize beekeeping in New York City, I'm sure. If you're tuned into this, you're tuned into that. But um, any other organizations or um, associations you'd like to call out? Energy Apiaries has, uh, has got a lot of books and references um, up on that website. And what was that fabulous book you told me about? It's a book by Eva Crane. The World History of Beekeeping and Honey Hunting. I think it's quite a tome. So... For all of you out there, um, hope this is useful, and please do get in touch with Sam and go on his website and research on your own. If this is something you're passionate about, I think we're going to need a lot more beekeepers as well as a lot more farmers. Um, this is Severin. It's Greenhorns Radio. Thank you for joining us. Thank you to Hearst Ranch for sponsoring this show. Please do visit our blog, www.thegreenhorns.wordpress.com, for upcoming events, um, news relevant to young farmers, gossip, video ephemera, um, land opportunities, courses, and announcements about our upcoming event, Watermelon Moonshine, August 29th, um, here at Smithereen Farm. So, talk to you next week. Thanks so much for joining us. Bye-bye. <laughs>